Birders, join the ABA and hundreds of friends at the Lower Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival in Harlingen, Texas, beginning November 7th, 2018. Come bird South Texas and see some of those amazing species that just sneak across the border into Texas. Plain chachalaca, clay-colored thrush, tropical perula, and more. The birding is great. The festival is so much fun. There are some great speakers lined up. Get more information and register at rgvbf.org. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick. It it feels like I haven't done this in a while. I recorded the last couple episodes prior to my trip to Cuba with the ABA. I am back now. I'm happy to report that my predictions last time were more or less accurate. I'll be sharing some more thoughts on all that at the end of the episode, so stay tuned for that. In the meantime, I came across an interesting piece of news, this from Cornell, but it was their report of the latest edition of the National Survey of Outdoor Recreation. A couple caveats, this is from 2016. It takes a couple of years for the economists to crunch the numbers, so that's why it's 2016 and not 2018, but birding does seem to be growing as a recreational activity. These numbers are probably a nice baseline at minimum, so take it as that. Second caveat, this is for the US, but my hunch is that the trends for Canada are similar, maybe 10% of what the numbers are for the U.S. That seems to be the case for Canadian things. Canada's population is about 10% of the U.S.'s. The ABA members in Canada, about 10% of the ABA members in the U.S. Everything sort of shakes out nicely like that. So while the numbers are not specifically relevant to our Canadian listeners, members, friends, uh, as I said, I think the trends are relevant. Anyway, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service says that there are 45 million birders. This is a a number that we have argued about for years. What is a birder anyway and all that? I'm I'm not going to go there. It is an unsolvable mystery. It is a it is a silent impid riding a second year hybrid goal. You don't know what's going on. It's probably pointless to try. There was another figure that struck me as more interesting and it's that $1.8 billion, billion with a B, spent annually on binoculars and spotting scopes. That is more than the amount spent by hunters on firearms. Now, is that indicative of the growth of bird interest? Is it say more about the fact that hunters maybe buy their firearms and expect them to last a little bit longer? Little of column A, little of column B, I imagine. But it does say that birding is big business, and I do think that purchasing optical equipment now, ostensibly to improve your birding or bird watching experience. That, that is what these tools are for. You want to level up, if you will. You want to make an investment in your experience. That seems like a pretty good indication of birding potential, especially for organizations like the ABA who are trying to reach these people, these people who want a better birding experience. There was also a note that $4 billion annually is spent on bird food. That doesn't surprise me too much. You know, you can get that stuff at big box stores, though it's not the quality stuff. Lots of people have bird feeders uh, sort of tangentially interested in birds. Anyway, I thought those numbers were interesting, even if I'm not sure exactly what to do with them. On the show today, I'm going to talk about my trip to Cuba and what it means that American birders can enjoy it now. I teased that a little at the beginning. But first, David LaPuma is the director of the famous Cape May Bird Observatory and what is easily one of North America's most storied birding locations. We will talk fall birding in Cape May, bird research in the 21st century, and the Cape May's, the upcoming Cape May Fall Festival. All that after a supersized rare bird focus. (laughs) 
This is your ABA Rare Bird Focus for much of the month of September 2018. Regular listeners know that I skipped the Rare Bird Focus last time around as I was out of the country, so I'll try my best to catch up here. September is probably the best vagrant month of the year, and 2018 was no exception. A lot of weather, including a major hurricane landfall in the southeast, but we had great stuff all over the continent. There's been a lot to report in western Alaska this past month, both on Gamble and St. Paul. Gamble has had several willow warblers, I think three at least. The island has become the spot for that species in recent years. Also good was a pachora pipit there. St. Paul was no slouch either. The bird of the season was likely the ABA's third record of solitary snipe, but birds of note also include red-flanked bluetail, taiga flycatcher, and gray-streaked flycatcher. The first records to note, probably none more surprising than a great kiskity at Rondo in Ontario, a first provincial record, though not surprisingly the farthest north record of this widespread neotropic species that still belongs to a pair found in South Dakota a few years ago. A good find nonetheless. It was a veritable September of Sulids in Tennessee, a brown booby in Memphis was a state first. That species has a well-earned reputation for showing up in odd places in the continent's interior. Less prone to do that is blue-footed booby, but one in Kane County, Utah, was a first for the state. But that is not all, at least not when it comes to boobies or sulids for those who prefer the non-purient terminology. In British Columbia, a red-footed booby off Haida Gwaii was a provincial first record, and that was not BC's only first for the period. A common ringed plover in Campbell also gets that distinction, so two for BC. We also had two for North Dakota, not a state we get to mention here often, but one that had a nice run of rarities regardless. A Cassins Vireo in Ward County was in North Dakota first, as well as a Hammonds flycatcher in Divide County. We'll stick with Vireos. In New Jersey, a stunning yellow-green Vireo was pulled out of the nets at Cape May last week. Obviously a first record for that state. It happened after I talked to David LaPuma for this episode, otherwise we probably would have talked about that. Interestingly, the bird was given a geotransmitter backpack, so we'll be able to follow its movements in more or less real time. As of the recording of this uh, podcast, it's staying put on restricted land in Cape May. Moving on, Colorado's first fork-tailed flycatcher was seen in Larimer County, a stunner with a nearly complete tail. Connecticut's first roseate spoonbill was seen near Milford. A lot of surrounding states had had spoonbills this year, so undoubtedly Connecticut birders were happy to get on the board there. And I believe that I predicted spoonbills in weird places last time. So, you know, point for me. Thank you very much. In Quebec, a broad-billed hummingbird at a feeder in St. Lambert de Lausanne is a provincial first, only the third for Canada. New Hampshire had a frigate bird species in Cheshire County, almost certainly a Hurricane Florence spinoff. It was not identified to species, but it's probably a magnificent frigate bird, but it may go down just as frigate bird spa, but it's a first regardless. And in Montana, a black vulture hanging out at a vulture roof near Choteau was a first and one of very few records of the species in the west of the continent. I think that catches us up. It was a fairly extensive roundup of the notable rarities in the ABA area for this period. For all your rare bird needs, check out the ABA blog every Friday morning. That's blog.aba.org. You can also join our Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA rare. Follow the rarity Twitter feed at ABA bird alert. 
Few, if any, birders would dispute that Cape May, New Jersey is among the continent's most storied birding locations, both in terms of birding spectacles and birding culture. At the center of it all has always been the Cape May Bird Observatory, New Jersey Audubon's Center for Bird Research and Education, which has been doing research and outreach about birds, and especially bird migration, since 1975. Dr. David LaPuma is the director of CNBO. He's an expert on radar monitoring of bird migration, among other things. And he and the New Jersey Audubon crew are hosting the Cape May Fall Festival later this month. Thanks for joining me, David. It's great to talk to you again. Oh, it's great to be back here, Nate. Well, we'll start talking about Cape May. So what is it about Cape May that makes bird migration, especially in the fall, so spectacular? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we've kind of batted this question around for decades and decades. I mean, you go back to Alexander Wilson claiming that, you know, if weather is a good predictor of birds, Cape May must have, must have the best weather in the United States because it has the most birds. So, you know, for hundreds of years, um, people have been been kind of noticing Cape May as a, as a spectacular place for bird migration. But um, we, tr- we say that it's geography. So I'm sure a lot of it has to do with geography. I like to think it's a little geography and a little magic. <laughs> so if you take, you know, if you look at the coast, the, it, it's hard. You got to kind of use your mind's eye here. If you've got a map in front of you, you of the United States, it makes it a little easier. But uh, the East Coast from the Canadian Maritimes down to New Jersey kind of um, cuts into the southwest, right? So it goes from northeast to southwest. And in the fall, the prevailing weather systems are cold fronts that come across from the west to east. I guess in every season they come from west to east. But in the fall, the, the northwest winds are building behind those fronts. And so when they clear the coast, you've got prevailing northwest winds. So the birds that are migrating south from the boreal forest and the temperate forest to our north um, think about think of the eastern Great Lakes all the way out to the Canadian Maritimes. Those birds, when they're heading south, are getting pushed to the coast by those mm-hmm. northwest winds, which is concentrating them over the coast. At the same time, that coastline's disappearing, so they're having to really correct for that loss of coastline um, and cut and cut back inland. So they're constantly being drifted, which then concentrates them along the coast. And that first major pinch point uh, along the coast is is Cape May. So. That is probably the, the crux of why we have this spectacular uh, migration. But the last, you know, this past September, I'm, if you know where I can buy a cold front, let me know because <laughs> I'll go out and buy one today. We have not been able to, to conjure one up this fall, really. I mean, there's been a few that have petered out. And we've been plagued by east winds for most uh, of the yeah. month. And, and I'll tell you, the birding is phenomenal right now. So, Still, yeah. You know, yeah, there, there's... There are birds that want to be here. There are birds that are forced here by the weather. And then there's just that massive movement of birds that happens at this time of year that no matter what, all bets are off. Things are coming through. Yeah, it's one of those places that's like, even at the worst of times, it's still really good. And there's always the potential that there's going to be something like amazing, like mind-blowing amazing. Yeah, yeah. So like just today, this morning, um, we've had several Manx shearwaters offshore huh. at the Avalon Sea Watch. We've had a number of Cory shearwaters, plus bay-breasted warbler, lots of black pole warblers, uh, a whole smattering of, of, of the regular the regular warblers, so perulas and black and whites and red stars. So the, the place is loaded no matter where you look. If you're looking in the trees, you're looking at the beach, you're looking offshore, there are lots of birds around right now. Yeah. You, you mentioned the Avalon Sea Watch. CMBO does a ton of banding, a lot of migration monitoring. What with, you know, you've got the famous Hawk Watch, the Sea Watch, the Morning Flight Watch on, on Higby Dyke. You know, all this stuff is very, you know, for lack of a, a better word, I guess, old school. You know, it's stuff that bird researchers have been doing since we started asking questions about birds. Uh, you know, at a time when there's so much 
technological advancement in the way that we approach migration research with, you know, with geotransmitters and radar ornithology and all that stuff. Why is it so important to, to still, to sit in one place and count everything that goes past? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so I'll just give you a, a quick recap of, of the work that we've been doing here since way before I got here. So 1976, the Bird Observatory was formed and the first Hawk Watch was that, that fall, Pete Dunn counting at the state park. And we've been counting raptors ever since every fall from September uh, 1st until the end of November. Um, our second longest running, mo- running monitoring project is actually the Monarch Monitoring Project hmm. that started in 1990. Uh, and it's the longest database of, of Monarch data in the world. Uh, and we do that and as, a, as a road survey and in, in addition to tagging of, of individuals that are then, it's a mark recapture project to see if we can recite them elsewhere. Our Avalon Sea Watch, which we started in 1993, is, as you mentioned, kind of an old school count like the, like the Hawk Watch, where we're sitting at a fixed point counting water birds migrating by. Unlike the Hawk Watch, the Avalon Sea Watch is really one of a kind. There are very few Sea Watches. They're, they're more starting now, which is great, but, so, but the Avalon Sea Watch is really kind of out there on its own. So its purpose is, is several fold, but you know, eventually we hope, to, hope it to be part of the network. But it also serves as a measure of uh, water bird migration, especially um, sea ducks. So black and surf scoter, we're looking at, you know, a large portion of the breeding population that breed in the Atlantic are migrating through Cape May. So we use it as actually as a population index of those birds. Uh, Northern gannets, another big one that comes through. Again, we can tie it to breeding records on the, in the Canadian Maritime. Oh, right. So we can really understand whether, you know, whether we're seeing changes in populations or uh, whether we're seeing changes in food resources that are driving them further or or less far down the coast, um, double-crested cormorants, another one of our big ones as well. So, and red-throated loon, those big ones comp- comprise about eighty-five percent of the count. But over two hundred species have been documented from the Sea Watch, so it's a wonderful wow. place for diversity. It's a wonderful place to witness migration. As I mentioned earlier, you know, make sheer waters today uh, in decent numbers. I mean, you know, anything above one is a decent number of make sheer waters <laughs> yeah, here. Sure, um, Corey Shear Water, so. Uh, it's a great place to connect people to nature. So we've got a great partnership now with the Avalon, the borough of Avalon. They built us this beautiful sea watching structure there a few years ago, and it just keeps getting bigger and better. So now where we would connect with, you know, maybe a hundred people in a year, we're connected with thousands of them out there. And and that's, that's part of our mission that the bird observatory, we're part of New Jersey Audubon. Our twofold mission is connecting people to nature and stewarding the nature of today for the people of tomorrow. Uh, you know, those people are a big part of that. And because we're a tank of gas from 60 million people here in Cape May, we need to connect as many people to it. Because as much as we'd like them to, birds just don't get out and vote. But people do <laughs> right. if you motivate them. Uh, and so, so that's kind of part of our, our biggest part of our mission here. Uh, if you go down, as you mentioned, Higby Dyke, we, we do a morning flight count there where we're counting predetermined migration. So these birds that are migrating back to the northwest after migrating south at night. And we still don't know why. So we've been doing this for, you know. For almost 20 years, and even longer before that, outside of the system, uh, the, the systematic count. Now that you asked about technology, so that's a point where we're tr- we're starting this year to think about and maybe even put out some transmitters on some of these birds that are migrating that are doing this morning flight behavior. Uh, and I hope by next year we'll be putting out a lot more and really pinpointing not only you know what they do during this morning flight behavior. But then where they settle out, where they stop over, how long they stop over for, and then where they leave from and where they come across the bay. Because if we know where they're stopping over, then we have an idea of 
stop over habitat right. quality. What places you need to protect, yeah. Right, exactly. So we can overlay that with some of the radar work where we've classified stop over habitat um, and, and kind of determine whether or not we've protected the areas that need to be protected or if there are areas we don't know about that still need to be protected. So the technology is the growing leaps and bounds, but this old school ornithology um, is still really, really key to getting a big picture of, of what's going on. You know, it's, it's, it's really expensive to put something on a little bird. Yeah. It's less expensive <laughs> per bird to have right. somebody count those birds throughout the season. Or sit up there for, for eight weeks and just count everything that goes by. And right. it also builds that sort of community that Cape May is, is so well known for. You've had so many amazing birders and ornithologists, so many people who are well known in the North American birding community and, and beyond who have come through Cape May. That's got to be amazing to be the focal point for so many, so much of birding culture. It, it's awesome. And, you know, I say that as some, as a birder who came down here as a grad student at Rutgers University. I and mean, then I say that from, from where I sit as a director now, but when Pete Dunn sat on that or stood on that table in 1976 and counted hawks for the first time, you know, you can ask him, he'll tell you there were probably five birders living in Cape Bay. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of the birders that were coming here were coming from the Philadelphia area or coming farther afield. Now with, and I would say that the the hawk watch itself was really that kind of nexus, that field of dreams. Um, it was built, and people came, and now we've got hundreds of birders that are living here. And so, you know, right down the block, I often joke when I have friends coming in from out of town, I take them on a little ride, and I'm like, okay, this is kind of like the houses of the stars. Like we're going <laughs> to drive by Michael Louise, uh, Michael O'Brien, Louisa Midas house here. And, oh, just beyond there, there's Richard Crossley's house. You know, and we kind of <laughs> do the rounds, and they look at me like I'm crazy, but. It's it's true. I mean, you're right. There's a critical mass of the ornithological talent, the field, you know, sketching talent, the field ID talent. Yeah. And that's what makes the Bird Observatory able to do what it does. And that's what, you know, Pete capitalized on it. And he built that from the beginning uh, with our School of Birding. So we have a School of Birding program where you can come here for one to three days and do workshops with Michael O'Brien, with, you know, Pete Dunn, with Kevin Carlson, uh, with Louisa Midas. So, that really lends itself to the to the, this kind of critical mass of, of birding brain trust. But as a as a total brand new birder, you can come here and go to the Hawk Watch, and we've got our interpretive naturalists there who are going to treat you like you're the, just as special as anybody else, right? Like like our goal is to make everybody feel absolutely welcome, no matter what your skill level, because everybody, every one of us started from you know from from that point at, at, at some point. So. You'll go up there. You might run into Richard Crossley on the Hawk Watch. You might run into Pete Dunn at the Hawk Watch. In fact, there's a good chance you'll run into Pete Dunn at the Hawk Watch in the fall. That's where he wants to be. Uh, and everyone is just w- willing to share and excited about having people here. So um, so if you haven't been here before, get here. And if you've been here before, you know you, you know already you're always welcome mm-hmm. back. And you should get here as much as possible. You need to get one of those open-top buses and uh, you yes. know drive people around. Make it like an open-top Hawk Watch and Birder House tour. Yeah, there's something there. <laughs> oh, man, the mobile hawk watch. Totally. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, Cape May is famous for, for massive visible migration spectacles. When your time as director, have you had any of those experiences that you said to yourself, you know, this could, this could only happen at Cape May? Oh, I have. I have. I mean, I was, I'm trying to remember if I was here as, let's see, it was 2010. So I was here as a postdoc at the time, and we had this massive fall. I mean, it was just this massive porking of migration where the where the birds were so backed up for two weeks in october late october and i think it was like the 28th of october of 2010 if my memory so i have to go back and look but it was the day before our fall festival started 
And finally, a cold front cleared. I mean, there were cold fronts that came through, and they would come through quick. And by the time it was night, the winds had turned around to the south again, and nothing was <laughs> nothing was moving. And then all of a sudden, this cold front came through, and it was a it was it was a Thursday night potluck, and we were all there, and we were outside, and it got dark, and the northwest winds kicked in, and they were starting to howl, and we could hear field sparrows and white-throated sparrows and <laughs> juncos and all the stuff started to go over. And then we spent the night under the lights at the convention center just counting birds. And it was just insane. I mean, there were, you know, marsh wrens in the road. And I found a dead Leconte sparrow on the road the next day. It's like there were tens of thousands of sparrows in the ground. And there's a dead Leconte sparrow. Like, how is that the bird that we're going to find right, right there? You know, yeah. but it's just, that's Kate May for you. I mean, yeah. it was it was insane. Um, and the next day was crazy. It was, you know, 70,000 Yellow rump warblers counted at the dike in those you know few hours after sunrise, mm. plus all the other birds. And so yeah, yes, I've experienced those those massive uh, fallouts. But a few years ago, we had one while I was direct when I was first couple of years in 2015, and it was an early September big flight of red starts and lots of warblers, but red starts were vastly outnumbering everything else. And I mean, I think it, I think we you know figured there were we think we tallied you know 10,000 red starts at the dike. But then if you extrapolated all the warbler spot and we kind of did the, the proportions, you were looking at like, you know, 50,000, 40,000 red starts. It was, it was insane. And I wasn't up there in 2017, but, but uh, Melissa Roach was counting uh, up there that she was the swing counter and the migration count coordinator. So she counted on the, on the counters days off and she got hit with this massive, you know, red start flight too. And I think that one, if you look at the actual ones that she enumerated was even higher than the. 2015 number so that's wild cape may bird observatory was founded and headed so long for so long by pete dunn you know one of the great naturalists and nature writers in the last few decades what is it like leading this organization that is such a huge part of north american birding history into the 21st century that's a great a great question it's it's wonderful i mean i think coming in here as the as the director you know it was obvious there are some big shoes to fill and i did a two-year postdoc here with new jersey audubon working with david mizrahi before um this position and there was about a three-year gap in between so i worked in research right next door to pete dunn while he was director of the bird observatory so i got to see kind of the inner workings of it for a while there which was really cool and it was sad that he had a stroke um while i was and i was not here at the time when he had his stroke and I was worried. I was wondering, you know, wondering what's going to happen, what's going to happen. When he decided he was going to step down, I was immediately, I immediately jumped on it. So I want yeah. that job. I mean, that's the perfect position for me to be in. And so I think I even called him right up and I said, Pete, I really want your job. <laughs> but uh, it, it took a lot. It took a lot to get here. And then when I got here, you know, it was obvious. You know, Pete had built this place on uh, on a lot of things, but really his ability to connect people to birding through very accessible language. I mean, the way he writes yeah. is just poetic. Uh, yeah. And it's and and he really kind of reels you in, no matter who you are. So he made it really kind of uh, uh, reachable for so many folks. And so it's not it's it's not rare this time of year to get people that have never met Pete to walk in and say, "Hey, where's Pete Dunn?" You know, and oh, he's down at the Hawk Watch, and go down there and meet him. I mean, he really kind of had that open door policy, and he was a fantastic writer, was very prolific. Uh, I came to this from a very scientific, you know, background, a, an academic background, but. But I do love to take academic subjects and break them down in a ways that are really digestible to broader audiences. So I think we have a shared interest there. But um, I think I've been able to kind of pick the low-hanging fruit in terms of the research. Like we've taken all yeah. of the, 
you know, all of the counts that we've done on paper previously are all digitally entered now, and we're putting them on the internet live. So we've got, we built this online following of folks that are now tracking mm-hmm. what's going on in Cape May. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that I, I thought was really important, uh, we talked about this idea of sensor networks, like the bird observatory in the context of all the world's bird observatories is a sensor. And, but, but those sensors don't always talk to each other. So yeah. we now have a friendship agreement with Spurn Bird Observatory in the, on the Yorkshire coast in the UK and Falsterbo Bird Observatory in Sweden and now um, Longpoint Bird Observatory in Ontario. So the four mm-hmm. bird observatories meet monthly. Uh, and these are things that, that were just kind of waiting to happen. You know, it was waiting to yeah, take the bird observatory yeah, yeah. to the ne- that next level. I, we don't talk about it yet. Um, it's, it, it's news. It's going to be news to probably people in our organization if they hear this podcast. But we are now finally starting to, to ban birds. So um, we, don't have a, we didn't have a historic songbird banning program uh, like other bird observatories do. But through my work, through our work with other bird observatories around the world, we, really, we realized that it's critical to not only understand what's here and how many of them are here, but how they're doing. Mm-hmm. And so we've got a partnership now with the Nature Conservancy and uh, cellular tracking technologies to kind of create a next generation banding station where we're tracking birds uh, at a very fine resolution. And we're really measuring their, their, their use of stopover habitat and how they're doing. Are they putting on weight? Are they losing weight? Uh, how long are they staying in the habitats? So we're going to be able to answer some of those long, long asked questions that, that folks have been asking for decades here. We're going to start answering those in the next few years. And that's super exciting. That's great. So let's talk a little bit about the festival. It's October 18th through the 21st. Uh, what can visitors expect to find? Yeah, so the, the Cape May Fall Festival, I mean, it's we're talking 70 plus years now that we've been doing it mm-hmm. uh, in Cape May. So it's the longest running birding festival in the world. Predates, predates Cape May Bird Observatory. It does. It does. It was, you know, it used to be called the Fall Weekend when New Jersey Audubon was doing it and for several years when the Bird Observatory did it. Like everything the Bird Observatory has done, we kind of ramped it up. So yeah. we've got something called, you know, it's called, it used to be called the Bird Show, basically where we take over Cape May Convention Hall and we have vendors and we have artists and we have speakers and we just fill that hall with, you know, all the optics companies, all the tour companies you could ever want, uh, live raptor demonstrations, Great artists, you know, b- bird artists and, and just nat- nature artists uh, pretty broadly. And then we've got kids programs that we do through our Nature Center of Cape May, which is our sister center down here. So it's just a wonderful experience. It's free entry to get into the convention hall. That attracts about 3,000 people over the weekend. And uh, if it rains a little bit, it attracts many more. If it's really <laughs> nice out, sometimes a little less, yeah. kind of ebbs and flows. Uh, but then we also have our pre-registration programs as well which are for the birders and the, and the spouses of birders and the, and the families of birders. And not just the birders uh, this year, we have Merlin Tuttle as one of our keynote speakers, and he's the bat expert. Oh, cool. And if you've ever seen those great photographs of like bats pollinating saguaro cacti out, mm-hmm. out in, the, in the desert, that's Merlin Tuttle. Oh, I mean, really? He's, oh, that's neat. He's a, wonder, yeah, he's, he's a fantastic researcher. Um, he's got a, a great conservation organization. And then he's also this wonderful photographer. Uh, if you read his Secret Life of Bats, you'll learn all about how he became a photographer. It's a great story. I highly recommend the book. Uh, it's wonderful. But he's going to be speaking on Saturday night, and he's going to be doing some workshops and programs as well throughout the weekend. Um, Jay Drew Lanham, yep. uh, one of my greatest friends and greatest colleagues, just a phenomenal guy. Recent guest on the podcast. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. yeah. So Drew's going to be here talking to you all about his obsession with birds. Uh, he's going to be keynoting on Friday night, and they'll be doing a walk with me on uh, Friday as well. So 
that's going to be a lot of fun. So we've got all these great workshops and walks and van trips and indoor programs that fill out the schedule. Plus the evening ketos are just phenomenal. So all of that is on our website, njaudubon.org. That's N-J-A-U-D-U-B-O-N.org. And uh, right at the top, you can click on the festival information and get all the details. Dr. David LaPuma is director of Cape May Bird Observatory. He and many, many other birders will be at the Cape May Fall Birding Festival, October 18th to 21st. As he said, you can get more information and register at njaudubon.org. It's the first thing you see when you visit that site. Thanks. Thanks for talking with me, David. Thank you for the opportunity. It was a lot of fun talking to you. As always. When I was first starting to think about expanding my own birding experiences beyond the ABA area, beyond the English-speaking world, Cuba held an irresistible attraction. I imagine it does for a lot of birders. It's so close, so close, just right there, barely south of Florida, where I had been birding many times by this point, but so different. Cuba, of course, was a victim of politics for decades for reasons that never really made a lot of sense to me. And as the U.S. normalized relationships with other former political adversaries, Cuba was still always treated differently. I'm not going to go into all that because this isn't a history podcast, except to say that it's an interesting story about how attitudes get ingrained into the very highest echelons of political power. And after a while, inertia kind of does its thing. Most of that happened a full generation before me, and so by the time I cared to pay attention, the rut was well-worn. That didn't stop adventurous American birders from getting there, though, via Canada or Mexico with a diplomatic two-step upon their return, a few knowing winks. And of course, Canadian birders have always been able to enjoy the island, but for a birder like me, looking at pictures of legitimate, exotic-seeming stunners like Cuban trogan or blue-faced quail dove, and knowing that these things were just right across the water, more or less unseeable. It's a, it's a strange feeling. Still very odd to think that it's only been a couple of years since all that changed. To get on a plane in Atlanta and an hour and a half later be in Havana feels surreal. It feels foreign even in a way that much of middle America doesn't quite anymore. But, but it also sort of doesn't, largely because it is, as I said, so close. So I got off the plane and I went through customs just like you would in any other country. My first bird off the plane was Cuban Martin flying around the terminal. So one endemic down. The others came pretty easily too. That's, that's another thing about Cuba. It's very birdy. Antillian palm swifts, not an endemic, but they are everywhere. Cuban blackbirds, which are an endemic, are among the most common birds around. Birders are sort of conditioned to think of endemics, those birds special to a given place, as requiring special effort. But in Cuba, with a couple exceptions, that's not always the case. Even those that required special trips did not necessarily require special effort. We had the spectacular Cuban trogan with that tail, that amazing scalloped tail in the first few days we ended up finding them nearly every other day afterwards same can be said for cuban parrot and cuban toady zapata wren requires a boat trip but not a long one giant kingbird needs some scanning but not a lot of it cuba is a long island so there's a lot of time in the car but the birds performed admirably the birding was very good of the 30-odd endemic species and near endemic species on cuba we saw all but two Gundlach's hawk, which we heard, is more easily found other types of year, and Zapata rail, which you know might be extinct. But I will say that 
I did not realize that more than half of that Zapata Peninsula is inaccessible, and there is a lot of marsh out there in the hidden part of it that could easily hold them. I spent a lot of time thinking about how my perception of the place squared with the reality of being there. Cuba is a, is a fascinating country for reasons aside from the birds, and the birds are, are pretty fascinating. The totemic representations of the heroes of the revolutions uh, from the early part of the 19th century and the more modern era, the people moving around by bike or horse or hitchhiking, the famously crazy old Franken cars all over the island, the Cubans who live modest, but it should be noted, very rarely impoverished lives. Unlike many places I've traveled, I really came to Cuba with a pretty clean slate. But I came away satisfied, both as a birder and someone with the opportunity to experience this place that is both so far away and so, so close. I don't know if the ABA is planning another trip to Cuba, but if we do, you'll be able to find it along with a whole bunch of other ABA events at aba.org travel. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoyed this podcast or any of the free resources the ABA provides to birders in North America and beyond, the best way to support it is to become a member of the ABA. In addition to helping us out, you get birding and Birder's Guide magazine all year round, plus discounts to our partners like Video Books and the opportunity to join us for ABA events, among other things. Learn more at aba.org slash join. Special shout out to John Leschinski of Seattle, Washington, Peter Dominowski and Alicia Schaefer, their family of Fort Wayne, Indiana, Jason Schultz of Thurmont, Maryland, Henrietta Burke of Maple Grove, Minnesota, Kelly Sidario of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Peter Radigan of Baltimore, Maryland, Alex Landberg of De Plains, Illinois, John Ficken and Laura Lorenzen of St. Petersburg, Florida, and Diane Duke of Mesquite, Texas. You all joined the ABA in the last month and noted the podcast as a reason. Thanks so much for your support and welcome to the ABA. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He notes that repairs of car windows broken by angry twitchers who miss their target bird is up 3.012%. That's, that's got to be indicative of something. Technical production is by John Lowry. He points out that bird emojis now make up more than 10% of all animal-related emojis, though 50% of those are chickens or roosters. That's progress of a sort. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who believe that the decreasing ratio of birders flock, birders migrate for the birds, take flight, etc. headlines to non-punny headlines and bird-related news items is indicative either of the growing acceptance of birding among the general public or a decrease in the number of working newspaper copy editors. The jury is still out. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. You know, here at the ABA, we have our own metric to determine increased awareness of birding. It's different than the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. It's how quickly people realize that they have tagged the wrong ABA on Twitter. And by those metrics, we still have a long way to go. Hashtag wrong ABA. Questions and comments can come to me at podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.